Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Big concerns with the economy. And, uh, you know, we had a 1.1% drop in December of retail sales in some key areas during the height of holiday seasons. Um, the retail sales, a measure of purchases at stores, restaurants, and online declined. They seasonally adjusted 1.1% over the prior month. It's the biggest monthly decline of 2022. And it's the second second consecutive month of a drop. But the issue here, more than anything else, is at a time when people are at their peak of spending, we saw a drop in retail spending. Is that an indicator of things to come? Microsoft has said that they are going to lay off about 10,000 employees over this year. So we know that that's coming in some of the, the, the tech world. Um, we are seeing a lot of that. Um, Goldman says their profits have plummeted. A lot of this is policy-driven. We have seen tax revisions on trades. We now know that there are people that are pushing for taxes in blue states. This is an interesting story. The point here is to make sure that we do at the state level what is not being done at the federal level. This is a Democrat named Gustavo Rivera, a New York state senator who is part of a seven-state group. Some of the state bills resemble a wealth tax that was recommended by Senator Elizabeth Warren. Here's what I find fascinating about this. And the old adage, and it still it holds true for the most part, nothing's 100%, that we tax the thing we want less of and we subsidize the things we want more of. Um, there was a shift at the end of last year, in the last quarter of last year. There was a record for one month. In, in a one-month period, a record number of millionaires leaving New York and relocating to Miami, Florida. The number one area now in the country for inflation is Miami because there has been an exodus of the wealthy from places like New York City where the local, state, and federal taxes have become so oppressive they are getting out. Um, I love New York City. Um, I, don't, I haven't spent a, a lot of time there. I don't know the city as well as others, but I love it when I go. I've spent a lot of time in Midtown. A lot of time near Times Square doing some of the radio and television stuff that I've done and Avenue of the Americas and, and Broadway and, and in that area in Midtown. And I, I just love New York City. I love the feeling. There's a vibe there that is really incredible. It's a great place to visit. It is the, the, just an incredible place. And I don't think I could live there, especially not with the climate as it is right now. Um, the punishment of the rich, the mentality of punishing the rich. So you're going to tax what you want less of. Why would a billionaire Why would a billionaire stand for it? A, a billionaires can write checks for things that you and I take a lifetime to pay off. They could buy five houses tomorrow that you couldn't afford one of in your entire life, and they could just write checks for them. And why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't a billionaire that's currently in New York say, you know what, I'm going to keep a place in New York or I'll rent one. You know, I can rent one for 25000 bucks a night when I go to New York City, but I'm out. I'm going to go to Miami. There's no state tax there. I'm going to go to Dallas. There's no state tax there. I'm going to go to Phoenix or Scottsdale. I'm going to live in North Scottsdale where there is a very low flat state tax. Why would I homestead in New York where you are just raking me over the coals for the money that I've made? It makes no sense, and yet the mantra still is punish the rich, punish the rich. If you listen to people like Bernie Sanders and you listen to people like Elizabeth Warren, you would think that wealthy people are the bane of our existence. The funny thing about it is they're wealthy people. Nancy Pelosi is a wealthy, wealthy woman, her and her husband, and yet they act as if they're the good ones. 
everybody else's best, especially if you own a business. If you come from corporate America, if you're a CEO of a major corporation, you are evil incarnate. And I've never understood the class warfare part of that. Now, here's the other side. I talked about this number earlier. It is, to me, incredibly insulting to the American people. For America, for the American people that are having a difficult time making ends meet, um, and uh, we are watching taxes fly out the door at a record pace. The United States Treasury has collected more money every single month, every single quarter, every single year for the in, in, in recent memory. And they are continuing to try to raise taxes and raise fees and do things on the wealthy. This is what is the slap in the face to every hardworking American. The Pentagon still cannot account for roughly $220 billion in equipment. They don't know where it is. Two hundred and twenty billion with a B. They have no clue. No clue where it is. Here's a headline to sit next to that. Military families go hungry as the U.S. defense spending soars. Um, people believe because it's who we are as a nation. We think a couple of things that are false narratives sometimes. Number one is that um, members of the military are taken care of financially. Um, they are not, uh, especially when they have families. When you are at a lower rank in the United States military, you do not make a lot of money. Now, there's food that's provided in many cases or housing. And you have medical care, but they don't make a lot of money. As a matter of fact, you will find at times, and many of them don't want to admit it publicly, but there are families that work in the United States military in installations, Luke Air Force Base and otherwise here in the state of Arizona, where they are not only full-time enlisted, um, what we would call um, – you know, somebody that is serving their country full time um, that are on welfare. We did an event years ago where we provided enough to make Thanksgiving dinner and meals to the National Guard families that are stationed here in Arizona, National Guard troops and their families, many of them not making enough money to make ends meet in spite of the fact that they also do their National Guard duty. Um, and so it was it was a it was a privilege to be able to serve them, but that's the, a false narrative to believe that we are caring for, financially caring for our members of the military, and the other narrative that's false is that veterans get the excellent medical care that we say we're going to give them. It's a story for a different day, but those two narratives are not true. So here you have the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, that says, we have equipment to the tune of $220 billion, and we have no idea where it is. And then you read a headline that says military families go hungry. You know, I could now think of an immediate place for that $220 billion to go that they eat like kings. And their children eat like kings and queens. That they eat like royalty. And so when I look at this stuff, it's frustrating because as an American taxpayer, I love my country. I talk about the patriotism and how much I love this country. And I honestly do. I'm so proud of to be an American. But that doesn't mean that we don't hold elected officials accountable. We pay a lot of money in taxes in this country, uh, some of us more than others. But as a nation, the federal government takes a huge amount of money away from the American taxpayer. So if you look at us as a group of people, as we are one team, um, not Republican, Democrat, or Independent, or Green Party, or Libertarian, we, the American people, are one team, and the federal government is the other team, not necessarily adversarial. Series, but different teams. Our job as the electorate is to hold them accountable to do what they're hired to do. We hold the power of the purse because we hold the power of the vote, and we don't do it. 
I want you to think of another situation. I said earlier, with even if you took zeros off of here, took a lot of zeros off of this. If you worked for a company, you know, I don't know, like around here, I don't know who's in charge at the radio stations here, who is in charge of the money, you know, of keeping track of the money. But I guarantee you that if somebody in this building that was in charge of accounts payable or whatever it is couldn't account for $22,000, they would be looking for another job. And yet here we are, $220 billion with a B, and it just continues. And that's the kind of slap in the face the American people should be really upset about. We do something at 1120 every day. If you're new to the show, please uh, stick around, and thank you for listening. We do something called Did You Hear This? It's how we quick way to catch you up on the biggest news stories of the day. We're going to do it coming up here in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, time to catch up on the biggest news stories of the day. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. A new report shows Americans are cutting back on spending, and it may be a good thing. This is the second straight month we've seen um, sales pull back, uh, specifically electronics and appliances down more than 1%. We pulled back heavy on furniture and home furnishings, and department stores got clobbered during the very critical holiday shopping season, down more than 6.5%. Do you think this shows that inflation is continuing to cool down? I don't know. we got to see if prices are going to come down along with the spending going down. Are people being stretched thinner than ever? Is consumer confidence dropping? These are all questions of why this is happening. Is it happening because goods are still expensive? Is it happening because people are fearful they won't have a job? Let's find out what the reasons are behind this. But we've got to see prices come down before we see jobs going away. The biggest issue for me is keeping a strong job market if possible, but seeing prices fall. And I want to see that happen before anything else. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema discussed the importance of the filibuster at the World Economic Forum. Some would say that there were reluctant folks working in Congress in the last two years. I would actually say that that was the basis for the productivity for some incredible achievements that made a difference for the American people in the last two years. Do you agree with her sentiments? Yeah, I do. And here's why. We know that uh, it's a simple majority in the House of Representatives. All you need is a one-vote majority to control the committee assignments and control pieces of legislation and a one-vote majority to get a piece of legislation passed. But in the Senate, they call it the, the, the saucer that cools the drink because in many cases it takes 60 votes to get a piece of legislation passed, which means we don't see these huge swings in policies and laws depending on which party controls the chamber. So you're going to see if – let's say the filibuster was gone. You would see some very – and I'm not calling them good or bad. I'm making an acknowledgement. They would be very liberal pieces of legislation on whatever it is that would be passed with sweeping changes. In two years, if the Republicans take over that body, there is no filibuster for the Democrats to use. They can't stop a, what they would call a radical piece of legislation. You see that pendulum swing way over to the right. So that's why that uh, filibuster is so important. It forces negotiation. It forces compromise. And it forces them to not have those big ideological swings so that our heads aren't spinning when pieces of legislation pass. I think it's necessary. And I agree with Senator Sinema. You are listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to catch you up. 
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says there has been unequal treatment of the handling of the discovery of classified documents in the case of President Trump and President Biden. But there is a key difference between them. The Trump-appointed judge ordered that Mar-a-Lago search warrant after nearly a year of Mr. Trump ignoring requests to turn over the documents. Do you think that's an important difference? I do. I think it's a very important difference. But again, when you're, you got to understand the questions from the American people. It's an important difference. If the former president who is not above the law was ordered by a judge to give back documents and he didn't, you understand the federal government going to get them. Was it necessary to go light sirens and tactical gears with the gear with the FBI? While now we're hearing that the Biden administration had documents, it was known to the federal government in early November before the midterm elections. It never became a news story. Those are the kinds of differences that people are asking. But as far as the former president being required to uh, to give back documents, he didn't. You're right. That's a significant difference. Now, the question is, Joe Biden and his people had no idea that he had those documents. If it were known to the federal government, would they have asked for those documents back and would he have complied? Those are the questions as well. Arizona is experiencing a water crisis and it just seems to be getting worse. Circle of Blue, which investigates water scarcity, warns a worst-case scenario for Arizona could make Phoenix one of the most uninhabitable places in the world by 2060. Are you planning to move in the next 30 no. years? This is, again, um, I, I don't blame organizations like this who talk about worst-case scenario. You know what they say? It is very important if you're doing your due diligence that you prepare for the worst and you hope for the best. But the idea that we're not going to have water in 2060, I think, is a is far off. There's no way that that's the case. Um, I think we've got plenty of water. I will tell you this, going back to the days of Senator John Kyle and the hard work that was done in the federal government to ensure water to where we are here in Arizona, what Arizona has done with um, with you know conserving water and with also hanging on to water when it rains. We've done a great job with water storage. So we have done a much better job on conservation than our neighbors to the west in California. We need to keep doing that here in Arizona. We do live in the desert, but I, I'm not as fearful as some of these people are saying. I'm not going to call them scare tactics, but I'm certainly not worried we're going to run out of water by 2060. All right. That is Did You Hear This? Great job as always. Julia will do it again tomorrow at 1120. Um, these are all things that are concerned, and we are concerned about water. Are we going to do a desalination plant in Mexico and then pipe the water into Arizona? Is that one of the uh, answers to our issues as expensive as that would be? There's been another idea floated that there would be a pipeline, much like an oil pipeline or a gas pipeline, going from either the Missouri River um, or from the Mississippi River and having that water transported in to Arizona if necessary. If, as long as we have ideas and we're staying ahead of what we know is critical, and I think we have, I know we have in the past, what do we need to do moving forward? I think we're going to be okay. We should never ignore the problem, but I don't think it's dire yet, and we'll see. We shall see because I still think growth is going to be a big thing in Arizona for the next 20 years. We are going to be growing like crazy. I believe the Phoenix area was number seven on the list, or the Arizona, state of Arizona was number seven on the list of growth which is a very good number. In a moment, we're going to talk about protesters at the Capitol and education. Stick around. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. 
Hey, appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, we have got to talk about, we've talked a couple of times about this, and it's worth diving into again. Education is uh, some parents are riled up, the expansion of the ESA program. And I guess it, do, it does depend on where you stand politically because it does have a lot to do with political ideology. But uh, rave reviews around the country from some states saying that we are now the gold standard for school choice in Arizona. Many other states are looking into adopting a program like we have with the expansion of the ESAs. Now, the ESA program, the Empowerment Scholarship Account or Education Savings Accounts, whatever you want to call them, is now available. About 46,000 children get their schooling through an ESA program. The average voucher is worth about $7,000. And um, so I, I just think that it's also a symptom of a bigger part of the problem. If Arizona schools under the current system as it exists were performing better, and I'm saying not even great, over 50% proficiency in reading and math, you wouldn't see as many people doing what they're doing. Um, isn't it interesting? I don't know how many of you felt this way, but education didn't mean a whole lot to me when I was young. I was, I wanted to work. Um, I, I hate it now. I really do. I'm disappointed in myself to be in all complete, completely honest. My inferiority complex comes around. I work around a lot of people with college degrees and some of them graduate degrees and, and brilliant people that also had the discipline to do the coursework. I don't doubt my intellect, but I certainly doubt my discipline. I look at that and I say to people, I joke about it, but in, it, just to be in a moment of pure um, candor, um, you know, I barely have a high school diploma. And when I say barely have a high school diploma, I barely have a high school diploma. Um, and I look back at that part of my life and I realize it was a mistake beginning at about 12 years old to think to myself. And it was an overt thought in my mind. I just want to grow up and work. I can work hard. I can out hustle people and I'll, I'll make my way. And I did. I, you know, let's, I, you know, to to toot my own horn for a minute. I did. All right. You know, I was an electrician and made a nice living and owned my own business as a contractor. So it turned out OK for me. But I worked a lot harder than I needed to. And I look back now and I think the one thing they can't take from you is an education. Fortunately for me, I had a good basic education. I'm a very good reader. Um, I always have been. That has helped me immensely in both of the careers I pursued. One is an electrician and this. Um, had I not had that skill set, and that's my biggest fear for young people now, because young people don't see the long-term consequences. You're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. You're never going to die. You're never, you know, it's, you're never going to run out of injury. Your joints aren't going to hurt. I was just joking about it earlier today. You know, I was laying in bed watching playoff football and my hips started to hurt. Laying in bed. You don't ever think that about yourself when you're young. When you're young, you're just invincible. And as you get older, you realize how much you miss out on and what a great thing in education to lean back on would be. For me, I would love to have an American history degree or a poli science degree and be able to say I've done the coursework. Not only am I in this business and I can I can talk about a multitude of issues and I feel comfortable that I, I'm knowledgeable in those issues. I've done the coursework. I've gotten the degree. But beyond that, I would say that where we are short selling our students is we're not giving them the chance to recover. It scares me so bad to hear that we have less than 50% of third graders that are reading at a third grade level. We are tying a hand behind their backs. Because let's say some kids take the same path I did. 
They go into high school. They're not very attentive students. They don't go very often. They're working. They're making a little bit of money. You know, I was making money in restaurants. And at the time, you know, you make cash and tips and always had a pocket full of money and could do whatever I wanted. I wasn't rich, but for a kid that was 15, I was doing all right. And, you know, I was able to hang out with my friends and buy clothes and do stuff. And, um, when you when something hits you, when there's either an opportunity that you don't want to pass up or for many people it's getting married or having a child and you realize now you've got a human being that relies on you, um, the world hits you pretty hard. Uh, I was – you know, God takes care of drunks and fools. And I, I, you know, I, I had an education that I could lean back on in the sense that I could read. So I had the ability to learn. When I dove into being an electrician, I was able to read the code book and read school books and go to classes and perform the math skills. And I excelled. I mean, I really excelled. So the same intensity in which I ignored school and just worked in a restaurant, some other things, when I poured that into a direction, into a trade, it, it gave me amazing results. But I had a skill set that gave me the ability to learn. I wish that was the focus of more school districts, especially in the elementary schools and the younger ages, that their focus, their laser focus with young people was we are going to give you the skills to learn for the rest of your life. And I mean every teacher. That reading was so important that those kids knew they weren't leaving third grade until they could read at a third grade level. The parents saw the importance because here I was at 18 years old. And then look what happened you know, in my life in my 30s, 40 years old, whatever it's been now, 40-something years old, when I had an opportunity in a career that I never imagined I would do, this one. Everything I do is read. I'm surrounded by papers. All I do is read. All I do is read and then immediately react to what I'm reading. I've got to convey a thought. All those things that when you're a kid, when you're working in a restaurant, you just think, what am I ever going to use any of this stuff again? And had I not been blessed with that skill set, I could have been a lost cause. I could have loved being an electrician, but not if I couldn't do the math. If I couldn't read, I'd have been on a job site. I probably would have made a living, but I certainly wouldn't have been able to excel the way I have. So I know I, I, I belabor this point quite a bit, but I just think for all of us, this ESA expansion that gives parents the freedom to do what's right for their child. I don't know that if a different set of circumstances, a different outlook, a different school would have benefited me if I had been surrounded by other people. I don't know that. All I know is that there was one option for me because at the time that's how it was. And it was a good school. I still love that school. Um, Cypress Lake High School in Fort Myers, Florida. I still love it. I'm still a Panther at heart. And uh, But at the same time, um, this is the 21st century, and there are options. And a parent should be able to look at their child and say, the oldest one is doing a great job. You know, I've got, I've got uh, two nieces and a nephew. And uh, the, the two nieces have graduated from high school, and the nephew was a freshman in high school. But as they grew up, the oldest one was a lot like me, and she was kind of the class clown. And she did okay in school, but she wasn't going to be a Rhodes Scholar. And, and But she did well in school. She graduated, did a great job. She works now. Um, the, the middle child, she was a whiz, man. School was so easy for her. She was able to just – I mean, it was great. She was just so good at it. And the youngest one has really applied himself in 
high school now and is getting really good grades because in his mind, he wants to get a basketball scholarship. So he is really setting himself in his studies. Um, my point is each child is different in what they want and how they apply themselves and what the outcome is may be for all of them the same in getting a high school education or going on to higher education. How they get there could be very different. And why would we dare to take away options from families? That's my biggest beef with the anti-ESA crowd when they talk about it bankrupting the system. It absolutely is not going to bankrupt the system. It's not going to bankrupt Arizona education. What it does is it takes the power of the purse away from school administrations and it gives it squarely to a parent that says, this is what's best for my child. Now I can earmark the tax dollars for my child to the education that best suits him or her. And I don't see a problem with that. And I don't know why Arizona would either. So we'll see. I think the governor has got her work cut out for her in trying to diminish or eliminate this program. I think it's going to be tough for her, and we'll see. We'll see if the legislature stands up. Uh, we're going to revisit something on the border on a story I told you earlier from a listener. I'm going to tell you that story again because I want you to hear what the real stories about immigration are in America. It's coming up in just a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, enough of the preaching about education. Let's get to something that I found very fascinating today. I had been telling some stories, I, 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 and I apologize. I, I just uh, Things click for me that maybe don't click the same way for other people. Um, I have long talked about my friends that are immigrants. I've talked about the people that I admire that have come to this country and in one generation proven that the American dream exists. That through hard work and perseverance and sacrifice, it doesn't work 100% of the time for people, but it is still so possible. For people, uh, I was watching. I mentioned this earlier, as dumb as this sound, the show Master Chef. It's one of the Gordon Ramsay shows, and it's where they take amateur chefs or amateur home cooks, and they do a competition. They eliminate one every week, and they uh, they end up with one that wins, and they win $250,000. And the whole thing could be a setup. I don't know, but it's compelling, and I like the show because I like Gordon Ramsay, and I love to cook. And so two of the contestants, when they were asking them, where does your love of food come from? Where did this, where, where did your passion come from? The first was a guy that's a Cuban immigrant. And he said, I came to this country as a little boy. I was born in 1980, came to this country as a little boy. The first time he ever had an apple, an apple was when he came to the States. It's just so foreign to an American. So the idea of that's crazy. He had never eaten an apple until he came to the U.S. Another one of the contestants was a woman that was Burmese. She was from Burma. And she said, in my country, we are thankful to just have a bowl of rice. And so now she gets to cook in this kitchen where there's more ingredients than she could have ever imagined using. And the two of these people really loved cooking because their imagination could run with it. It seems like an endless supply of food in this country. And for people where food insecurity is life, and I mean real food insecurity, the American dream is alive and well. And then I got this message um, from a listener, and I don't want to use names, but it was such a compelling story about her mom. Her mom escaped East Germany. 
She said every day they had vegetable soup and bread with lard smeared on it to eat. Once a year at Christmas, they got an orange and nuts. The nuts had to be cracked in a sock. They didn't get a stocking. At 12, she escaped to West Germany where she uh, got on an immigrant boat, worked for two years while being sponsored before she entered the U.S. She became a citizen of the United States, and she cooks. She's obsessed with food and how it's presented. She's always been thin. She doesn't believe in diets. She eats and cooks extremely well. And because she's never had it growing up, she feels so blessed and privileged to be in this country and to be able to cook and buy food. When we tell stories of immigration, when we talk about immigration here, uh, Senator Sinema lamented at the World Economic Forum that um, America right now does not have the ability to choose who we invite and who we don't invite into our country. It's the cartels that are doing it. And she's 100% right. We must always reserve that right and make sure we exercise it that way. That we invite who we want into this country and we don't invite the people we don't want. And we should always have the right to expel people that we don't want from this country. But what we also should be looking at is the other side of that coin is the celebration of the people that we invite because the stories I just told you were not rich people. These They didn't come to the United States with wealth or even necessarily with a higher education where they came here um, to you know work at a high-paying job. These were people that just came here for an opportunity and made their way, and that's the American dream story we should be telling. These are the stories that we should never let die, that in the U.S., we have an opportunity where people from very meager beginnings can apply themselves and live a dream. Who would have ever thought you'd hear a story in America from someone who said, the first time I ever ate an apple is when I came to the United States. It's absurd. Anyway, it's just my take on immigration. We have got to continue. I think we should. We need to continue to tell the stories of the greatness of American immigration and the people that do it the right way. I think that's one of the ways we get over this and we have a system we can be proud of. Uh, you can hear the music. We're just about out of time, so I'm going to tell you how to reach me. Social media users at Broomhead KTAR. That's where you find me on Twitter. That's my personal account. If you hear from me there, if you get a response or see a tweet, that is from me. If I owe you an apology let me know at broomhead show updates you on things we're doing on the show guests and otherwise um if you want to reach me on instagram check out some pictures trade some funny memes mike broomhead all one word is where you can find me on instagram we begin the show again tomorrow morning starting at just after 8 a.m as we do each and every day i hope you can join us tomorrow thanks for joining us today until tomorrow morning after eight have a great weekend or a great week god bless